I'm going to take it as a given that culture in human communities is a socially learned and socially created system of categories, values, and rules through which sets of people live their lives. I'm also going to take it for granted that these categories, values, and rules are more or less conventional and normative. People feel the categories, values, and rules to be right, and they have that feeling as part of their social relations with other people. In this sense, I don't consider there to be a strong separation between the processes of society or social relating and the processes of culture. These are one and the same. In cultural anthropology for the last several decades, there has been a lot of doubt cast on the idea that culture exists as a system. We have seen come to the fore a whole variety of intensely nominalist convictions to the effect that culture is a process, not a thing or a unit, that cultural systems are contradictory and fragmented, that cultures are heterogeneous and partial rather than homogeneous and socially shared, and so we should just stop talking about culture altogether. I think all those first things are true, but that it's still necessary to speak of there being systems or forms of cultural order, and in fact that to give an actual account of process, contradiction, or heterogeneity is necessarily to be giving an account of something that is systematic. It's just to be giving a better account of it. So taking the existence of culture as normative system for granted, what I will talk about today is my sense that reflexivity about culture is integral to cultural order and probably a crucial site of where cultural order happens, a crucial site <clears throat> of how culture comes into existence on a day-to-day -day or decade-to-decade -decade basis, and a crucial site of how culture has the shape that it does. What I mean by cultural reflexivity in human cultures is something very general and very widespread. I mean any process of making cultural and social statements about cultural and social convention. If we want to go in a jargony direction here, we could speak in terms of metaculture, meta-representation, or meta-communication to get at this idea. The basic notion I'll be exploring is something like the following. Whenever there is a human norm or a convention, not only is that norm something that people enact and live out or live through, but also the norm or convention is something that people live toward. They can make the norm or convention itself a focus of reflection and, and action, and they can bounce off of it or twist it, creating a different norm that stands relational to the first norm as both dependent on it and different from it. So this is a vision of culture as a kind of constant dialectic or cycle of norm and twist on the norm. A trivial but hopefully clear example of what I'm talking about would be puns and tongue twisters. The saying of puns and tongue twisters is a case of metalinguistic activity in which the speakers of a language make the socially held conventions of their language the focus of attention, reflection, and even deformation. They're putting a little twist on some norms. Consider she sells seashells by the seashore. In the trivial act of saying this sentence, what is mainly going on is not the normal use of language to refer and predicate as in saying something about a woman who offers something for sale near the ocean. Rather, what is mainly going on is that the utterer of the sentence is saying something about the conventions of the English language and saying something about a speaker's ability or lack of ability to perform those conventions seamlessly. As in puns, so too in tongue twisters, one sp more specific thing that is going on is that a speaker is drawing attention to the arbitrariness and conventionality of the links that a language makes between particular sound forms that are made by particular physical gestures of the vocal apparatus and particular denoted objects or events. This tongue twister draws attention to this conventionality and arbitrariness by playing on the fact that two very different ideas are signified by two very similar sound sequences, seashells and she-cells. 
The tongue twister is also specifically a reflection on the existence of patterning of sound form as a level of the systematic organization of the English language that exists separately from the system of words or other meaning-bearing units. In saying this tongue twister, I'm saying the segments sh, s, and z re repeatedly, inverting sh and s in the second repetition and dropping the z in the third. The tongue twister is partly about the fact that the sounds sh, s, and z are very similar to each other in what they sound like and how they are physically produced, but they, even so, they are, differently, they are different enough to make a difference in English in the semantic meanings that are carried by sequence sound segments. Here's another example of cultural reflexivity. Satire and parody are by definition genres of cultural activity that take existing cultural conventions and twist them. They take conventions by which other messages are usually conveyed and make those conventions themselves not the vehicle but the message, here a focus of mockery. This article is a send-up of a whole suite of our society's rules, categories, and values. Like other Onion articles, this one mimics the genre conventions of straight written news reports, including conventions of what a headline is in relation to some juxtaposed other text, and what a headline syntax and typography are, and conventions of date, place, and human source whose words and actions are being channeled through the news story. The article is also a twist of the conventions that news articles of the convention that news articles that follow these conventional patterns are true. The Onion mocks the, the conventional understanding that because something appears in print or on screen from a news outlet, it is a description of reality. Finally, speaking in the falsified voice of the actual CEO of PepsiCo, the article is a twist or reflection on our society's organization around values of corporate profit, mass consumption, and marketing, or the activity of deliberately trying to shape the consciousness of large populations of people by persuading them to feel personal desire for objects based on the object's brand aura. No amount of Onion articles are going to change these various major conventions of our culture, but still the Onion articles exist in the first place as a cyclic or dialectical twist on those norms. Onion humor, like tongue twisters and like any stable genre or subgenre of satire, has itself emerged as a conventional kind of activity. It exists as a body of norms. The idea I want to put forth here is that culture at large is organized a bit like a play on words or like a satirical newspaper story. Culture consists in a vast network of links between normal categories, values, and rules, and other normal or quickly becoming normal categories, values, and rules that are reflexively twists on the first ones. In the very general terms I've defined it here, cultural reflexivity is something that is everywhere in our world. Ethnic tourism, cultural anthropology, and the other social sciences, pretty much the entirety of the arts and mundane rituals of reading a regular newspaper in the morning or keeping up with a fashion of dress or music would all be instances. Indeed, the idea that culture and society exist reflexively might not be all that foreign to this audience because, in fact, the dominant folk ideology of society and culture in the West, and especially in the U.S., is that people exist naturally as individuals first, and then they decide what they're going to, that they're, the way they're going to have a society, a culture, and a political order, and they make one. Individuals are a given, and the social order is made how we choose to, through the deliberative processes of our public sphere and through our choices as private individuals. But I actually don't think that the kind of network of cultural reflexivity that I'm talking about is exactly the same thing as choice, overt deliberation, or overt propositional statement of actual conventions. 
People who are great at saying tongue twisters or making puns don't need to deliberate on and spell out the conventions of their language for the wordplay to be pleasurable or make people groan. Just as overtly spelling out the norms that an Onion article parodies isn't necessary to feel the point of the article and may even make the point less powerfully felt. I also don't think there's a great divide here on this quality of reflexivity between modern and non-modern cultures. So to illustrate a bit further the sorts of things I have in mind by reflexivity, I want to jump to a very different human context, namely the culture of Korwai people of West Papua Indonesia, where I've done my own main cultural anthropological research. Korwai are a population of about 4,000 people who live dispersed uh, out across 500 square miles of lowland forest just south of New Guinea's central mountain chain. They make their livelihoods by planting banana gardens, by tending and processing sago palms, and by fishing and a certain amount of hunting. Over the last 20 years, they've become internationally famous through about 20 television shows that have been made about them, and a vast number of magazine and newspaper articles in which they're portrayed as a perfect fit to the metropolitan western stereotype of a tribal society. They're also famous in particular for their tree houses. I'm going to begin with a humorous and, again, in some ways, trivial example, namely a popular way that Korowai address each other in speech that is a bit like our own practice of nicknaming or pet naming. Here, though, the expression is used reciprocally between two people, and it is based on an experience of the two of them having once had a common experience that set them apart as a mutually identified pair. The most common pattern is for a pair of people to call each other throughout their lives by the name of some small snack they once shared together. Some examples are at the top. But other patterns are for people to call each other by a term referring back to an event of deviant eating or some other mildly transgressive experience of bodily transgression. Korowai refer to these special person reference partnerships by saying that two people, quote, avoid each other. This is in reference to the rule that a pair who enter into one of the partnerships is supposed to avoid ever saying each other's names. Instead of using names, they call each other by the special term prefixed by a possessive pronoun. They they each call the other my breadfruit nut and so forth. There are several different ways that this person reference practice is like a tongue twister or an article in The Onion. Several different ways the practice is reflexively relational to other core-wide conventions and norms. I'll quickly just mention three. First, the practice is a twist on personal names as another conventional system of how individual humans can be represented in language. One way the avoidance partnerships are related to names is they cross them out, so to speak. Partners make reference to the system of people having names and comment on that system in a negative act of agreeing not to use the names, even though they exist. The partnerships are a way of saying the conventions of names aren't so good, much as the Onion article is a way of saying the conventions of capitalism aren't so good, or the conventions of reading the New York, the conventions of reading the New York, New York Times aren't so good. But at the same time, there's a prominent way that the partnerships resemble names. This is the fact that the partnership terms are idiosyncratic to a particular pair of persons, and their use of the term goes back to a history of the pair taking up that term together as their common designation for each other. Just as a personal name is idiosyncratic to a single individual, and the use of that name for the person goes back to a history of the person being given that name early in his or her life. Here the partnership terms might be thought to say, the conventions of names would be great if two people could share one and be linked together by it. At the very same time, the partnerships are a twist on kinship terms. Words like mother, son, uncle, niece, grandma, and so forth are the dominant ways by which core, core refer to each other in speech. 
They ubiquitously use these words to refer to even people they don't know very well and aren't closely related to. Use of kinship terms is so much more common than use of names, for example, that it is quite common even for a speaker not to know or remember the personal name of a fairly close relative. There's no sense that failure to remember someone else's name is an insult, as in our own culture. Now, one of the distinctive characteristics of a kinship term is that while it refers to one person, that referential meaning is established relationally to the identity of another person. An uncle or grandma is somebody's uncle or grandma. So in core wife speech, for example, kinship terms generally are spoken with possessive pronouns attached to them. People are constantly addressing each other as my uncle and so forth. Certain of these terms are usually used reciprocally between two speakers, much as in our own speech community, cousin is a reciprocal kinship term and sister is a reciprocal kinship term between women. What I'm leading up to here is that the special personal reference partnerships I described a bit ago are themselves quasi-kinship terms. Two people speak reciprocally of each other as my falling down, and one person is a falling down only in relation to the other person in the pair, not in general and not in relation to other people in the society. The whole genre of person reference is a hybrid between personal names and kinship terms. Naming and kinship term usage exist as two different systems of communicative norms which contrast with each other in certain ways. And to this field of already heterogeneous norms, Korowai add a further twist, creating a complicated third system that they find pleasurable. A further cultural system that these person reference partnerships are probably relational to is interactional avoidance between married men and their wives' relatives. This exists as an independent set of norms in the society. In-laws are supposed to avoid each other's names, and mother-in-law, son-in-law pairs avoid seeing each other, touching each other, or sharing food. This in-law avoidance is serious business and hard work, and carrying it out carefully helps keep constantly in view the broader moral relation that exists between a man and his wife's relatives, a relation of intrusion, obligation, and intense accommodation. But in another context of their lives, namely the special person reference partnerships that I've talked about, Corway can also make avoidance into a bit of a pleasurable joke. The person reference partnerships are a little parody of the society's own conventions of avoidance, a parody that doesn't directly have anything to do with in-law relationships. Indirectly, though, the parody makes light of the tenseness of those relations while also reflecting on the positive power of formal avoidance in making people related to each other. The other example of Korowai cultural reflexivity I'll sketch briefly today is feasting. Korowai live far apart across the landscape because they're committed to political values of not being bossed around by other people. Their residential dispersion is organized around a system of land ownership in which the members of a small named clan together own a square mile of land, live in different corners of that land, and steward its resources. They travel around to visit and cooperate with relatives on other parts of the landscape and are visited regularly by those people in turn, but they are generally most at home on their own land. Houses only last a year or so, and people often maintain two or more houses at once. So the temporality of people's lives together is very much lived as a high, highly mobile process of orbiting from one house to another across the landscape. About every five years, the members of a clan build houses together in one place, though, and they call in help from their closest relatives elsewhere and set in motion a two- or three-month process of decimating their sago palm holdings to produce a huge quantity of beetle larvae and sago starch to feed to a thousand or so people from elsewhere across the landscape who will converge on their clan land on a specific day at the end of the labors. Most of these people come in large performance processions that are organized around a specific promised gift of food from one of the feast owners to a person from elsewhere on the land. 
While we speak in English of an, of an, of an event like this as a feast, Koroi most frequently talk about it by speaking of a gil, or feast building. To hold a feast is to, quote, build a feast building. To Koroi, the specific long ground level dwelling that is built in the middle of the overall feast clearing is the physical part that stands for the whole event. These feast events are reflexive twists on many other central norms of Korowai life all at once. Most obviously, the event is a twist on the normal conventions of dispersed living in high houses and the political values of autonomy that other residential pattern enacts. Instead of staying apart as they normally do, feast owners live together in one place and coordinate their labor on an enormous scale. This is politically a very charged and difficult thing to do. Feast owners often find it stressful to live together so much under each other's noses for such a long period and to cooperate so intensely in the exertions of feast labor. Since people are averse to being bossed around by others and do not recognize or appoint formal political leaders, one of the biggest ways that feast owners manage to coordinate their labor is by steadily reciting to each other the agreed upon sequence of about 30 different main steps in feast production. Reflexively talking about the appropriate way to put on a feast is one of the main methods by which people actually manage to carry out a feast. In this way, feast events are partly a reflection on broader questions and values about how people are to have a coordinated life in time, how they conventionally approach time as a medium of social connection or disconnection with their clanmates, questions and values that are in play at all times in life, but that are focused on an intensified way through feasts. Similar relations of reflexivity also exist between a feast event and the wider geographic landscape. The events of people traveling from different places they belong across the landscape to the land of a single clan who receives them as guests is an enactment of and a special twist on the institutions of clan ownership of land and the institutions of dispersed living across hundreds of square miles of forests. The difficulties and pleasures of this huge coordinated event of hospitality are an intensified version of the more mundane rhythms of much smaller sets of people visiting each other's houses and lands on a day-to-day -day basis in non-feast times of life. As just one kind of indication of what I mean here, I'll mention a couple of points about the ways the architecture of feast buildings are linked to the society's wider geography. The Korowai lands lie mainly between two large rivers that flow in a west-southwest direction. For talking about space, Korowai pervasively use stream-based terms, meaning upstream and downstream, rather than geocentric terms like the English compass directions or body-centered terms like left and right. Thus, people constantly talk about others as being located upstream or downstream, or being an upstream person or a downstream person. This overall schema for talking about social space gets represented in how people use their voices and move their bodies when they travel to a feast. There are two main named genres of performance procession, and which type a given network of people perform depends on whether they are traveling downstream or upstream to get to the feast site. In a similar way, a feast building, diagrammed here on the right, is a bit of a picture of the wider landscape and people's connections across its distances. Not only is the building big and on the ground, making it inherently more permeable and welcoming of people across the land, but it is specifically long and skinny in the manner of a stream. People build it on a broadly upstream-downstream orientation, and each of its gable ends is referred to respectively as the upstream inlet and downstream outlet. A major activity that takes place in the feast building is coordinated marching and singing up and down its length. This activity, I would suggest, is a kind of reflexive picture in vivid and concrete sensory form of the larger and more diffuse situation of people living dispersed across the upstream-downstream landscape and steadily visiting each other across it. 
As I presented it here, the overall observation that cultural reflexivity is an integral aspect of the organization of human cultures is an exceedingly general idea. My own view, though, is that this central aspect of how culture works tends to be left out of our common sense definitions of culture as socially maintained and socially created conventions. It's also my view that the intensity of the kinds of reflexive links between cultural elements that I've been sketching here is vastly underestimated and underdocumented in cultural anthropologists' past and present ethnographic work. At the same time as I hold these opinions, I speak on the subject of cultural reflexivity as someone who has no idea if this issue is at all relevant to the relation between human and non-human cultures, and no idea if the issue is relevant to anthropogeny. I stand here as someone with a total lack of professional knowledge of non-human cultural processes, which I regret very much, but I'm very happy to be having the chance to begin ameliorating that situation for the rest of the afternoon.